My name is Liam, one of the pastors here. Uh, Why don't you turn in your Bibles, if you've got one, to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read from verse 37 in a few seconds. Don't worry if you're new to church, we're going to have all the words that I'm going to speak from God's Word on the screen so you can follow along. And if you are new and you've got a Bible, then when we see the chapter number, that's a big number. When we see the verse number, that's a tiny number in amongst the text. Uh, As you're turning there, as we prepare our hearts, let's pray to God and ask for his help in understanding what we'll look at. Our Father, in the book of Deuteronomy, you show us that the words written in this book should also be written on our hearts, not just read, but loved, and not just loved, but lived. We can't do that on our own. We need your help in this, so please grant it now. According to your great love and kindness, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, self-obsession is fast becoming the epidemic of our time. That's the warning sounded by a team of uh, social scientists whose report was published in Time magazine recently. Uh, They're worried seriously about the rise of narcissism, uh, self-love in our society. And one of the social scientists has uh, been quoted there as saying, Never before have people been so self-infatuated. It comes with a warning. And I think they're right. What do you think? Uh, I mean, one thing you could think about is just how even our use of the camera has, has evolved. We've gone from standing behind a camera taking photos of others to standing in front of a camera taking photos of ourselves. But as if the selfie wasn't bad enough, the mirror selfie... What is all that about? When you take a photo, when you're looking at yourself on your phone, taking a photo of yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself in a mirror, nothing says, I love me quite like the mirror selfie. And why would, why, like, okay, why in a bathroom? (laughs) Why with a bidet in the background, a toothbrush in the front, why? It just does not make any sense. But... Such are the wiles of self-infatuation. The scientists have concluded it is dangerous. They also offered a solution. We need the story of Narcissus retold in every generation. Now, Narcissus is, of course, the gorgeous guy in Greek mythology who saw his reflection in a pool, fell in love with it, couldn't stop looking at it, and finally drowned in it. Education, they say, that's the solution. Well, what do you think about that? Is that an answer to the self-obsession and self-infatuation that we see in our city, in our land, in our world? Do you think we're self-obsessed narcissists? Is that a dangerous thing for a society? What would you say is a solution? Well, what does God's word say? That's what I want to share with you this morning from Matthew chapter 22, 34 to 40. In this account, we are just three days shy of Jesus' death on the cross. And to give you a little bit of context as to what's going on round about this time, Jesus is being interrogated by the religious leaders of the day. They're bustling around him like a media scrum. They're the selfie generation of their day. In the very next chapter, we'll read Jesus saying of them, everything they do is done for people to see. It's narcissism. 
Now they're firing questions at Jesus and the next hand to go up is that of an expert lawyer, an expert in Old Testament law and Matthew says his question is a test. Verse 36 says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what's the best thing that God has commanded us to do? Now this guy is not asking in order to believe. He's asking in order to make Jesus, to trick Jesus into making a career-ending mistake by saying one part of God's holy word is more important than the other. Jesus' answer to this question is what we all need to hear as we suffer the dangers of self-love. Let's read from verse 37 and following. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's not hard to see from looking at the text that it's a two-part reply. So let's look at it in two points this morning. First of all, love God with all you've got. That's the first command that we're given. Now, why should we? Well, first of all, because of who he is. Uh, he is the one true God. That is the claim of Christianity. That is what Jesus himself has said. And that's what this passage that Jesus quotes says. He's actually quoting from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. So he answers the Old Testament expert from the Old Testament itself. A passage well known to this kind of religious huddle round about him. They would have recited this verse and this Shema, it's called twice a day. And what does it say? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God, okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Now, that basically means unique, matchless, in beauty, in majesty, in glory, in his person, and therefore, most worthy of our worship, our devotion, but never in a cold-hearted, ritualistic way, this is the done thing to do. No, heartfelt, with love in return. Now, the people way back then in Deuteronomy days needed to hear that because they were guilty of, if you like, if I could put it this way, of cheating on God, directing their love and their worship away from God and to other gods, to lifeless things, to powerless things, and mainly as a means of satisfying their own narcissism. That's why this love God is actually not just a gentle nudge and encouragement. It's a command. This is the thing you must do if you really want to understand what love is and where it should be directed. You shall love the Lord your God. And those two titles, Lord and God, are very deliberate. It's Jesus' way of reminding them and us today that this is what's right and good for us. This is how life is meant to be lived. This is where love is meant to be directed. So by quoting this passage, he reminds them of who God is and why it's right to love him and wrong to love yourself or anything else before him. Love God for who he is. But secondly, love God because of what he's done. 
Now, the proof of God's love was standing right in front of these religious leaders, really. I mean, I could take you back through the whole Bible from cover to cover, really, to show all the ways that God has manifested his love. But let's just look at Jesus himself, the Son of God. He's proof of God's love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the sending of Jesus itself, then, is an immense gesture of the love of God. But it was actually also a loving warning shot across the bows of humanity. And it's louder, a warning shot that's louder and more serious than all the postulating of the social scientists in Time magazine. Because basically what this passage in John 3.16 says is that self-love will ultimately lead to a perishing eternity. That's a fancy way of saying what Jesus called hell. And that's a real place and a real problem. So for God to make this known in the person, in the sending of his son, to be motivated by love in the sending of his son is an incredible act of love. I wonder if you see it. You know, the kindness to point out what's wrong with us and deal with us, with what could destroy us, sorry, with every reassurance through Jesus that the eternal enjoyment of his love, the opposite of perishing, can be ours if we will, well, repent of our misdirected love, redirect our love to him, and reciprocate his love to us. Was not that a key theme through all four testimonies? I didn't know they were going to say all that. But of course, the clearest proof of God's love was not simply in the sending of his son, but the death of his son. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he has not only warned us against the dangers of self-love. There's the education bit, if you like. He actually paid the price for our misdirected loves. There's the salvation bit. That's what we need. Not just education, but salvation. Now, you see, today we make the same mistakes as the folks back in the days of Deuteronomy. We set our hearts and our loves on other gods or other idols. They don't need to be little statues for you to bow down to. They can be made of flesh and bone. They can be made of uh, paper or plasticky stuff like money is nowadays. Money, sex, power, relationships, all sorts of things can take first place, primary place in our hearts. Replacing God, de-seating, dethroning him. That's where he should be. That's breach of God's law. And to break God's law is to incur a penalty. Punishment is deserved. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, when he went to that cross, paid the penalty, not only to bring forgiveness for sinners like us, but gift us righteousness, a right standing with God, and at the same time, to, he billboards God's matchless love for us and leaves us in no doubt of just how much he cares. And we need that reminder regularly throughout. Because all Christians can at times forget. But God doesn't. And God makes sure that we have somewhere to look 
to remind us of his great love. Nothing says, if nothing says I love me quite like the mirror selfie, nothing says I love you quite like the cross of Christ. Now who has loved us like this in this world? Think about it, who's loved you in a way like this? Given themselves sacrificially to the point of death? Well, even the best of human loves, friends, I would argue, is not a patch on this love. That's why it's right not only to appreciate it, but to reciprocate it, and to reciprocate it in kind. I mean, as Jesus goes on to explain in this passage how we should love God, it's no surprise that to, to see that if he gave us all for us, we should give our all to him. So how should we love him? With every single part of us. We're to love him with our heart. In the Bible, that's a control center. We're to love him with our soul. In the Bible, that's our being, if you like, the existential part of us. If we're, we're to love him with our minds. In the Bible, that's the kind of decision-making center of us. But let's not get tied up in knots and try to separate these out. They're overlapping categories. And let's not get so caught up in trying to figure out what the words heart, soul, and mind refer to and overlook those three very important words in there. All, all and all. It's wholehearted devotion, every single bit of us, and every ounce of every bit of us. He's that worthy. He's that worth it. This is what the love of God deserves, indeed demands, wholehearted devotion, which makes it such a pity that we are so half-hearted in ours, dividing our affections between God and lesser loves. I mean, we've still got feelings for old flames of lust and greed and hate, even in the Christian life, but these things are toxic. We need to put these things to death and put on love. We need, to, we need what theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection, where he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, an old love, is by the expulsive power of a new one. And that's what Jesus is for everyone who believes and could be for you today if you put your love and trust in him. The call for Christians, of course, is to fuel your affection for God. Fan that heart into flame with love for him. He's given us his word. Let's read it. It's living. It's active at work in us. We have his ear. Let's pray to him. Let's talk to the God of the universe more. We have his body his church. Let's belong and do all these things together and be an expression of God's love to each other. What a joy that is. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not yet said the cross of Christ is the very center of my life now. Think about the direction in which you're directing your love. Where are you placing your love? You may not be a mirror selfie kind of person. I'm not trying to paint you in that way. But if all of life is lived with ourselves at the center, then effectively that is self-love. And it is dangerous for more reasons than the social scientists realize. It is actually a great evil to become our own supreme love in place of God. And it's a way of spurning the greatest love ever shown of disobeying the greatest commandment ever spoken. This cross of Christ that I've just talked about stands as a clear reminder for you that you don't need to scrub yourself up 
in order to get yourself ready to love Jesus, you need to come warts and all, even if you have taken mirror selfies, even if you have posted them on social media, come. We've done worse than that. I've done worse than that. His love is that good. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Experience what these four friends have just testified to in their own testimonies. Well, this is how we love God with all we've got. It's a better solution for humanity than mere education on the story of Narcissus. It actually turns out to be better for society too, as Jesus goes on to say in verses 39 to 40 when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as yourself. Who's my neighbor? A neighbor to, to us is someone who lives in our street, but a neighbor to Jesus is everyone you meet, even the person you might not like. And this is what it looks like to be so impacted by the love of God. It changes the way you love other people. Jesus' illustration of the Good Samaritan makes that very point. Everybody's your neighbor. Whether it's the child for whom your heart absolutely bursts, he or she is your neighbor. Whether it's the coworker who drives you insane with all his Welsh singing, he is your neighbor. I wasn't expecting him to be there at this very point. Tell me if he comes for me. Anyway, the person who hates you, though, and hates what you stand for, and is mean to you behind your back in order to stir up other people to be mean and hateful towards you because of what you believe, that person is your neighbor and you're to love them too. It's challenging, isn't it? Jesus likens love for God and love for neighbor because they're connected. Loving your neighbor is actually a way of loving God. He's commanded it. It does a bad world, a world of good. And if we love him and obey his commands, if we choose to love our neighbor as a way of loving him, then, well, they see him and they can give their hearts to him and experience a greater love than even that love that we try to show them. If you're here today and you're with one of your friends who, who are being baptized, I hope this is, I hope the pennies drop in here. They love you more than you realize. Anybody who's got the boldness to invite you to church, to stand up and talk about Jesus, so you can even hear something like this, loves you more than you realize. And this is the love that God wants us to have for us. How should we do it? How should we love our neighbor? Well, just as he taught us how we should love God, with a heart, soul, mind, and strength, he tells us how to do that. Here, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 39, wow, that is a high bar, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm seriously committed to my own good in pretty shameful ways. I'm, in normal ways, you know, I make sure this body is fed and this hair is gelled and I look after myself when it comes to watching sports and, and things like that. But you know, there are selfish aspects of me which to my shame I neglect those that I love the dearest because at times I love myself way too much. Narcissus lives on in me and dare I say lives on in each of us. But that's the point that Jesus is trying to make, actually. If loving yourself is one of the things that you do best in order to make sure that you're cared for, that you're alive by the end of the day, etc., then 
Jesus says, let the love that you show others be as strong as the love you have for yourself. And you can start to see how this just, as a kind of secondary love, helps put to death this self-infatuation. So brothers and sisters, as we live and move around this city, we should love others as we love God, love others as if they were you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Work and speak for their joy. Take genuine interest in their hearts. Regard yourself humbly as less than they are. Listen to their opinions with maximal respect and speak the truth in love. And in our church family, love one another deeply from the heart. As John 13, 35, where Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that we are Christ's disciples if we love one another. So friends, the social scientists are absolutely right to be concerned, but they're not concerned enough. We are self-infatuated and self-obsessed. It's dangerous for our society, but not as dangerous as it is for our souls. The solution is not to retell the story of Narcissus, but to visit the cross of Christ, to see God's love, believe in his son, reciprocate in kind with everything you've got. Let your heart burst for Jesus Christ, for his heart bursts for you. And imitate and display God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. So put the iPhone down, pick up your Bible, hear your friends speak, see for yourself there is no love like his. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the songs that we've been singing, the testimonies that have been given for your flawless word which speaks into our world so timelessly, so accurately to show us who we are, what kindness, but above all, to show us the cross of Christ, what greater kindness that is. We deserve nothing from you, but you have given us everything in love in the person of your son, that we might look to him and be saved. Oh Lord, let that be true for all of us today, and let us rejoice in salvation as we sing about it now in Jesus' name. Amen.